My name is Jonathan Garza. As some of you know, I have uh, come here to join our friends as we get to do this, live life together. And I love the city. I love coming here. It's just been a blast. It's been a joy to come from a really tiny, tiny place where the prisons are, where you have the only electric chair left in Texas, just blocks from your campus. So like if the lights flicker, you know what's going on. But I come to you tonight with a confession. Okay? It's about to get real. I'm just going to lay it all out here. Just hear me. Hear me out. I I just need some grace. I am a recovering homeschooler. So when I got to college, so actually my contacts tore right before we moved. The last pair of contacts I have, because somehow or another I got an eye exam, and I managed to stretch out that pair of contacts for a solid year. Like, don't tell anyone. I know that's really bad to do, but I did it. But then they tore right before we moved, and I have the glasses that I wore when I first got to college, and they have, like, the electrical tape right here. Like, all the signs. Like, I feel so bad for Pam when we first started dating, because she legitimately got the worst part of me, like, the high-water blue jeans wearing... Really strange, like, everything was a pocket tee. Like, at least this one doesn't have a pocket. It has, like, a design. It has some words. It has some interest to it. And as, as few will know here, I just want to give a quick shout-out to Erica. I know, I know you know my pain. So, life ever since being homeschooled has been one constant stream of, like, my mind being blown, okay? And it wasn't just because, like, I was... My parents weren't that crazy, you know, religious family who didn't want me to leave the house or something. It was just, it just happened. Like my, the school that we were in in San Antonio where I was born was really bad. Everyone there had lice and was in a gang and they came home with a black eye. Like it just was bad. So my parents were like, okay, we're just going to start you off here at home. And then they just kept going and going and going. And Like, I got my first job when I was at the end of 17, purely because I didn't have to work before that, right? Like, I got a car, and I was like, my mind was blown. I was like, you can go places. What? This is amazing. And then out of necessity, late in 17, I got a phone. I was like, this is so cool. You can call people. And it has internet. Like, I, I, every sense, every little thing that's happened, like, I got to college has been just a succession of my mind, like, what? You can do that, too. Like, I remember when I first started dating, and Pam was actually, like, this is how much of a homeschooler I am. She was my first girlfriend. I'm just going to say that. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm proud of that. I waited, and I waited for the right one, and she's beautiful, and she's right there in the back, and she's turning red, and you probably can't see it, but that's okay. So when we were dating, we went on dates, and I was like, oh, cool, time together. This is awesome. And then we kissed. <laughs> Mind was blown. It's like, whoa. It's like, so like ever since, like, just, and then we got married, and I was like, oh. <laughs> so first I need to establish something that we've been talking about here these past few weeks. As we've been talking about being together in community, and one of the things that we keep pointing out is that you intrinsically have a value. And there's an element of this that I think we kind of lose. See, when we talk so much about intrinsic value, this inherently comes, the flip side of this coin is that 
God doesn't want you to be a clone. I can't tell you how many people think like, oh, I come to Jesus and I'm going to have to give up the fun things and I'm going to have to look like that every other person and everyone immediately imagines their mom or their dad for some reason. I don't know why. And they're like, wow, I'm going to have to start doing that and wearing long dresses and wearing a suit and not be cool anymore. But I want you to remember something that the world's idea of being unique it's always the same. Like, you ever find that? Like, someone out there is like, I'm going to make a story, and it's going to be amazing. No one's ever going to make it before. And it always starts with, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> it's boring. Think of music, all right? A lot of music. I went to school for music. I'm a musician by trade. And we are taught, very first rule, music is a derivative you have this thing that you have this little idea and you, you take something from that and you like expand it. And so that's how we get bands that just sound like the person right before them. Anyone here rock fans? Anyone like Led Zeppelin? Okay. All of those riffs totally split and torn off from this guy that wrote music in the 40s. It's actually really, really cool. But like riff for riff and people get in trouble with like Queen because they're like, ah, oh, they're, they're so original completely ripped off. It's all a derivative. It's all been done before. And for you math people out there, not that kind of derivative, okay? I'm not, don't, don't go there, Seth. Just stop. I'm not that smart. I can only count to four. This goes completely against what God wants. You have likes and dislikes that make you, you. Creativity that makes you, you. God wants you to have and walk in that. So one of the things that you might remember is that comparison is the thief of joy. But comparison is also the killer of creativity. Okay? So we're, we're not about to like start singing like True Colors by Cindy Lauper and have a moment where like we're just like, just be you. You're amazing. Like we're not going to go there. Don't worry. But just know that when you stand in front of the mirror that you are beautiful like the rainbow. Mm-hmm. Just, just remember that. So what does this all have to do with our community? We're going to read John 13, 35. If you'll turn in your Bibles, it'll also be up on the screen. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Some translations actually say, if you have love for one another. And I, I want to make a distinction here that some people will think of love as like this, you're in or you're out type thing. It's like you have a bucket over here. It's like, oh, these people, I love them. They're my buds. They're so cool. These people, I hate them. I'm not going to, no. They're in. And it's not that at all. This is actually, if you look at it and study it and like the type of tense that they're using it's a present continuous it means if you are having love for one another they will know that you are my disciples if you're actively acting on this and taking steps to love one another they will know that you are my disciples and so i want to talk to us tonight about needing each other and i think this is a good place to pray jesus will you be with us father will you please open up our eyes and open up our hearts right now to to a word that sometimes is difficult god there's deep roots in all of this, Father, and some of them can be negative. God, will you please get at the heart of whatever is inside of us, our pasts, our histories, Lord. Will you please speak to us tonight, Father? Will you be in these words, and will you lead us and guide us? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We need each other. So as believers in Jesus, we kind of have this Christianese word called the body. 
And we think of, oh, we are the body. We will be the hands. We'll be the feet. And I, I remember when I first came to church, like, that's weird. Who says that? Like, I'm the body. I don't want to be a toe. Like, come on. Like, why do we have to be the body? Okay, so I, it, it became contextualized for me when I started coming into small group. And I realized what that meant. Like, the body was my small group. It was the friends around me. And it was the Chi Alpha around me. So, like, the guy that met me, his name is Josh Mirhead. I ended up in his small group. And funny story, he's actually going to be here, like, mid-October. So, if you see him, tell him hi. And, uh, yeah, just say hi to him. So, he was like a, a singer. He was an opera major at the time. And complete opposite. And you got to remember, this was like homeschool me, like high water jeans, still wearing the taped glasses and, and all of that. And here's this like opera major who just will not stop singing. Like he sings for everything. Like he's having a great day and he sings and it's just genuinely comes from the joy of his heart. And he was perfect for me because he showed me that it's okay to come out of my shell. Or I think of another friend, one of my roommates, his name was Derek Lynn. And Derek showed me that it's okay to be, like, righteously angry. I never knew that before. I thought that when you become a Christian, you're supposed to become, like, you know, meek and mild and not, not ever get mad at anything whatsoever. So one welcome week, we're meeting students, and there's these two guys that we moved in. And they were, like, from the hood. Tattoos. It was, like, they were really cool. I liked them. They lived in a really bad dorm. Like, put some context to this, this dorm eventually got demolished because of the smell of like microwave burrito when you walk in and the mold, like the black mold that was secretly hiding under all of the coats of paint that they put over it. It just had to be demolished. So they had a bad place. So Derek was like, guys, it's your first night here. Come stay in our apartment. Like we have a couch, we have TV, we have Xbox, we have food that's not awful. And they came. But we had another roommate who didn't quite get the heart of what we were doing. And so when my friend Derek has to leave for work, and he sees two dudes, like, squatting in the, in the living room, just loitering, playing Xbox, he got kind of freaked out, like, naturally. So I, he, he eventually came to get what we were doing, but he kicked them out. By noon that day, before Derek's shift was over, he asked them to leave. And... For those of you making friends here intentionally for Jesus, you know what that means. Like, time together is so valuable. And Derek never saw them again. That was their second day there, and they made new friends, and they moved on. And Derek was so, like, righteously angry. He was like, these are friends. These are new friends that has been brought into our lives. Like, how can you kick them out? And I've never seen someone want to strangle someone so much. He didn't, thankfully. But that was the body for me. And they showed me, like, what life was like and how to be and how to act and what was okay and what was not okay. And now the body is this for me. And so, like, from Maui, I'm learning what it means to truly welcome people. Like, I, I walked over to his—I didn't walk. I went into his house one day, and he was, like, cleaning. He pulled out the 409 and started scrubbing down the counters because a guest was over. And the counters were a little gross, and he wanted them to be clean for us. <laughs> And he does that for me. He does that for everyone that comes over. They keep a clean house so guests can come over. From Cody and Sam and Alec, I've been learning what hard work is. I worked a day in their shoes. It was like demolishing work. We took off this, this extension to a house. And I died. I, like, worked for six hours. And when I got home, I laid on my kitchen floor before I, like, 
showered up and everything, I like legitimately laid there for like 40 minutes and could not move because I had a migraine and wanted to puke my guts out. And I just remember waking up like 40 minutes later. I was like, oh, I'm going to go shower now. Okay. And they do this day in, day out. Like they were, they're hard workers and they're doing school and they're active here. From Adam and Seth, I'm learning that I need to work out. But then I remember comparison is the thief of joy. So Lord, help me. I needed each of them as I need each of you. Okay, now here's my hope that we can see by the end of this that we need each other. You kind of see where I'm going here? So why is it that this is the element of needing each other? This is the very first thing that we throw out when we get into community. Like when we get into a body, when you get into a room when there's more people there. We'll get rid of the Christianese. We'll just say, when you're with other people, why do we throw out that we need each other? Either, one, you don't get along, or you don't have common interests, like you have nothing in common, so it's just really hard to hold conversation. And what's worse, I would say, is that when you hit one of those two problems, check yourself, because in your heart, you might actually be saying, I'm better than you, you have nothing I desire, and nothing I lack. I'll say that one more time. If we're thinking that thought, we're actually saying in our heart, I am better than you. You have nothing I desire and nothing I lack. I have no need of you. This makes me think of the story of a friend. And we'll call his name Brandon. And this story breaks my heart. So I'm probably going to like, I'm, I'm sorry. This one's still kind of fresh. He genuinely cared and loved those around him. He was greatly insecure, but allowed others to sort of walk through those insecurities with him. He struggled with past hurt and disappointment. He didn't have a great history. His dad died when he was really young. His family had a rough time coping with that. So his mom had to pick up a whole bunch of jobs. And so he barely had his mom either. And he always said, that's just my life. It's just the way it is. It's my life. You don't understand me. And you could talk, but you were never truly like let in to what he was going through. And the end result of this attitude was pride. It's trusting in yourself over and above the others that God has put in your life. And he overcompensated. He overly compensated for this with an attitude of, I have no need of you. That's really what he was saying. When we try to help him through these tough things, when we walk with him in something that he's going through, he legitimately was saying in his heart, I have no need of you. You don't know my life. You don't know what I've been through. He clung to something in a greater way than he held to the love and trust of the Lord. And that means even over loving and trusting the ones that God put in his life. One day he hit a cliff. And we all do this. We all come to a cliff where we're tired and we got to go down it. So what do you do when this happens? Well, what climbers do is the one that's strong enough goes to the edge of the cliff and they hammer in this rod right in the middle of the edge where they can find a crack or some type of seam and it's an anchor. And then what they do is they free climb down and they take with them a rope that they attach to that anchor. And with them on their belt, they have this little thing. It's called a belay. It's a two-section little rope area where it can loop in around your waist and then loop up back to the other side and it'll help take the weight of the person that you're holding. So once they get down, they climb all the way to the bottom and then what you do is you strap in on the very edge and you tie yourself in a certain way or else you'll fall to your death. And then 
you start belaying down the side of this thing and they help take your weight. They carry your weight. They're legitimately there. Just go to the rock wall. You'll see it in action. It's what the guys are doing to make sure that you don't die and you don't sue ASU. But that being said, we all hit those cliffs and in those moments, is, that's when we need each other. So one day he hit this cliff and he wouldn't let anyone help him. I truly do believe that God puts people in your life for a reason and we don't get to choose our family. We know this. We don't get to choose our mom. We don't get to choose our dad. And I think in a very spiritual way, God puts people in your life who will disciple you, who will speak into your life that you're not going to get to choose. In Psalm 68, 6, we read, God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Let's read that once more. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Brandon left. And it was like burying a friend. There, there's no communication, no visit. He was embarrassed. He assumed that what we would think of him, he assumed where we were in his life. And what we were gonna, how we are going to judge him for whatever he was going through. But he didn't let us have a hand to walk through it with him. Even though we were right there. And we wanted to go through it with him. But he left. He didn't need us. If we don't trust who God has put in our life. And that maybe God put them there for a reason. Our judgment gets wacky. Eventually do this long enough and your sole guide of what is right will just be yourself. And this is not in the slide. It should be. I missed it. I'm sorry. But isolation always leads to insanity. Write that down because that one is one that will save you. When you find yourself trying to be God or something. (laughs) And pushing away from all the friends who love you. Remember that isolation leads to insanity. It's the saddest thing when we ask And ask for something from the Lord. And he says no over and over again. But we keep asking for it. It's the moment when he is silent and says fine. Have it your way. That's the scary moment when he leaves. When he leaves us to our own devices. To our own choices. Because remember he's a gentleman. And won't force us to follow him anywhere. He wants us to follow out of love. I can tell you, living a life of this leads to a very sad and lonely existence. I'm really excited for the shirts that are coming out. Because you know that that symbol on there, some of you might know, it's a symbol that is a derivative. Just like we talked about. It comes from the Moravian Church. The Moravian Church was a church movement that goes way, way, way back. And I love it because it's a representation of our Lord. Our lamb has conquered. Let us follow him. The Moravian church, when they first started, was not a very happy thing. You see, there was this man who was a count. How cool would that be to be a count? Like, you're like, I'm a count. I have land. (laughs) I'm going to go do countly things now. (laughs) His name was Zinzendorf. And he wanted to make a refuge for all of the persecuted Christians in his area. And he did. And he called it Herrenhut. 
fun word to say. And so a lot of the people who were persecuted were coming from different sects, different beliefs, different places, but they all congregated in this one area. And let me tell you, at the very, very beginning, like we, we hold that up as something to remember, to go for, but at the very, very beginning, that was not so. That was not so whatsoever. It was, it was crazy. Like, there were people that were dissenting. There was this one guy named Kruger who came in, and he was like a religious leader, and he pretty much said, like, I am sent from the Lord to find every fault here, and I'm going to fix it. It's my job to fix it. And he started, like, rallying all the people to follow him. Essentially, he started a cult within that church. And he tore it apart. Like, he was trying to create this splinter group because he refused to accept the input of others. And he's saying, I had no need of others. It took them working at setting aside their petty differences to put their trust in God that the Lord touched their fellowship. So there was this three-hour-long sermon that Zinzendorf came in, and he pretty much was like, okay, I'm tearing this all up, guys. Here's where we're at, where we're at. And he laid down ground rules for loving each other, for forgiving each other, for putting aside petty differences. Like, do you pick up the cup and drink first, or do you take the body? Do you, like, all the stupid stuff that doesn't count, it doesn't matter. And they set those aside. It was after that that the Lord touched them. And they held a hundred-year-long prayer meeting that was constant. Unceasing prayer for a hundred years. That's no exaggeration. We have proof of that. And I feel really, really bad for that, like, last guy on the hundredth year that, like, didn't set his alarm. He didn't wake up. And he was like, oh, no, I'm late for prayer. And then it was over. <laughs> but the Moravian church sent out over 3,000 missionaries. There, it's said that you can place their roots and their beliefs in every single major movement of the Lord since. That they've touched the great reformation. Jonathan Edwards was touched by Like there's just so many cool things. And remember that guy like Kruger that I was talking about? The really wacky one that was trying to start a cult? He eventually went crazy and was carried off to an insane asylum in Berlin because he isolated himself. And isolation leads to insanity. So we need each other. And there's always a reason for the person in your life. Okay? I'm close to the end here, I promise. So it takes honesty to live together. I tell you, those who really care about you will tell you when your fly is open. <laughs> They'll tell you when you have spinach in your teeth. Right? This happened to me like two weeks ago. I was sitting down at Scroggins' house and I like sat in jelly. And it was, like, in a really bad place. So I, like, got a paper towel, and I was, like, cleaning it off. But I put, like, way too much water. So by the end of it, I'm leaving the house, and we're about to go out in public. And, like, it looked like I wet myself. Like, I just the whole back end was, like, soaking wet. And Ryan and Scroggins loved me enough to be like, I know you're late. And I know you got to be there. But you got to go home and change your pants. Like, there's no way around that. Like, you're going to go home. You got to go home. And so Ryan, like, drove me home and, like, waited in the parking lot. And we were late because of me. But he was like, I love you too much to let you go out in public like that. Like, if real friends are honest with each other. Like, we know this, right? If you're a squad, if you're a group, you're going to be honest. If you're not, it actually means you don't really care about each other. So... There's no lone wolves in the kingdom of God. This is an element of honesty. 
when I think of this, I think of like the prophets. I think we kind of have this idea like Elijah and Elisha. They're like these cool dudes. Like they, they had like just like the bare essentials and they were in the desert living off the land and like listening to the Lord. And they're so cool. That's not the case at all. They only did that when they were called to. As soon as the Lord called them to community or to speak to a group, they went and they opened up their hearts and they opened up their lives and they spoke to them and they brought community wherever they went. And so honesty is being willing to understand each other, extend grace, hope the best in each other, but also love each other's futures more than we love their feelings. So I think of this as like Winky Prattney says this really well when he says unity is not unison. So unison is like taking two cat's tails and you tie them together and you're like, you shall walk together forever. And then you're like, you set them free. And then like, they live a good long life tied together forever by their tails. No. How many of you know, one of them is going to be dead before like 30 minutes. It's going to be really sad and really gross. <laughs> I just pictured that's going to be that's unison, though. That's not unity. Unity is when you're walking together to the same place. It's like this, like two guys going on a trail, and they're like physically walking with common conviction. They're going to the same place. They have the same um, common love. It doesn't mean they have to be of the same mind. It just means they have to decide, I will walk with you. The last thing about honesty is that you cannot self-crucify. Dick Brogdon says this oh so well. When he talks about this, he paints a very painful but sobering picture of this. He says, the reality is that we cannot self-crucify. It is physically and spiritually impossible. God hands the hammer to those who are near, which is part of the indignity. When we are disappointed in others, it's a part of the dying to self-process. Don't wiggle off the cross. Don't wiggle off the cross. Don't grab the hammer and start smiting the ones God has appointed to crucify you. There are probably forces and purposes at play far larger than the specific decision or circumstance. And he paints this picture that like when you're on the cross, like you're up there and it's got three points of contact. The old Roman crosses, they had three and usually it was sometimes tied, also common to nail. Like if they really, really wanted to get you, they were going to nail you. So you've got one here and you could maybe grab the hammer and just put one there. And then maybe if you're like really strong, like a super uber Christian, like you can like get your feet too. But then you have the other hand and then what? You cannot do it. We all have blind spots and we all have blind sides. Like we need each other to die to our rights and die to the things that we don't want to give up to point out those blind spots. If we're going to live life together, guys, we got to have forgiveness. And this is perhaps the hardest thing because we can all be honest. Like we can learn to get over some of those things and our insecurities. We can understand and have like a mental ascent that we need each other. But I think perhaps the hardest thing that you just cannot fake doing this, living life together, can't fake forgiveness. C.S. Lewis says, Forgiving and being forgiven are two names for the same thing. The important thing is that a discord has been resolved. 
See, we are forgiven and the discordant notes are being resolved, as Lewis says, in the daily miracle of us walking and taking up our crosses. And nowhere is this perhaps most notable than when we forgive one another. This like totally disarms the devil. It completely goes against the way of the world. See, the world says, you diss me, I'm going to diss you. You cut me, I'm going to shoot you. You hate me, I'm going to despise you. That's what the world says. And Jesus came as a man and completely through his life just went against every single facet of that and calls us to do the same. When we live like Jesus, that means that we lay down our rights. And when we feel offended or dissed, you should ask, what is that hurt? Is it that you're actually hurt? Or did it just wound your pride and wound your ego? Which is okay. We all have those things. But I'm here to tell you today the hard truth that those have to die too. In Matthew 18, verses 21 through 22, Jesus is asked by Peter, how many times should we forgive? Let's read that together here. And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall, we, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? And Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. So for you math people, seventy times seven. You got it? Yeah. 490. 490 times. Is, is Jesus saying that we're supposed to forgive like 490 times and then on that 491st time, we just be like, ha, you did it. You're going to hell, man. <laughs> Jesus said I could say that. No. Right? Context. Who here went to the How to Study the Bible one by Christopher? So you guys know this. You guys know where I'm going with this. Genesis 4. Lamech. Seventh son from Cain. And he proclaims, whoever kills me, let him be cursed 70 times 7. Who is Lamech? Lamech was a really, really bad dude. He was like one of the first guys in the Bible who was greedy. He was one of the first ones to take two wives because one wasn't enough for him. He was one of the first ones to openly brag about murdering people. He openly bragged about murdering children. Like, he just was not a good guy. He was a natural-born leader. He was a ruler, and he, he just was selfish. And so what Jesus is saying here in Matthew, he knows that to the Jewish mindset, when you say 70 times 7, you're not going to think, ha, 490. I know how many times I can forgive. Like, no, he's not saying that at all. He's actually saying, go back to Lamech. Even if you are this guy. One of the worst dudes in humanity that spread it. He didn't just kill his brother. He taught his brothers how to kill brothers and made a community around it. Even if you're that guy, you need to forgive him. You see, for us, some of us, there's a lot of family hurt. And it's deep. And it's inset. It's in our lives. And it's rightfully there. There's hurt that you can never take back and you can't change. For some of us, there's abuse and it's real. And please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying get over it. 
This abuse is a pain that no one will understand. No one will be able to comprehend. No one can say, I know what you've been through. Because they weren't. To have that hurt done to you by your own family members. People who should love you. Who you should trust. It can't be undone. And I'm here to tell you tonight that God sees that. He knows that. That when that awful, terrible thing was happening to you. That thing that seems so hard and so impossible to forgive. He was in the room with you. Weeping over you as that was happening. He was interceding for you. And he loves you. I truly believe that all forgiveness is a miracle. And we need help doing this. We're at that cliff. And you're not strong enough to get down. And you got to have someone climb down for you. And set that anchor. And strap you in and carry you down. And his name is Jesus. And his Holy Spirit is ready to walk you through that. You just have to let him. Lastly, I want to say that God is not asking us to do something he hasn't already done himself. He's done this in the most complete way. Will the worship team come back, please? If you were to hear the voice of the Lord read through the Bible, I don't think it would sound quite the way you think it sounds. If you were like me when I was younger, I thought that when he was telling the nations to, to take care of these other places, like to wipe out this place or to, to let no one live from this land, like before I used to think that was so, like what kind of God would say that? And then I got a little deeper into this and I realized that those nations had gods where you would literally, they, they would sacrifice for wealth and for land, they would take small children and lay them out over open coals. And they'd play drums in the background so they didn't hear the screams as they removed the arms. And the children would go and fall into the fire. There's context to why he said what he said. And I, you're not going to hear him talk and say these things in a commanding, harsh voice. I think you're going to hear him say it with sadness in his heart. And with grief. On his mind, calling achingly for us to come back to him, to come back to his love, to stop being stupid, and to come back. And if the creator of all the universe can forgive the immense wrongs that have been done in this world, then he can empower us through his spirit to forgive those who have hurt us. Will you stand with me? For some of us, I think the call of what we're being asked to do tonight is kind of twofold. For some of you, you have to forgive someone. A real forgiveness. And some of you, that's not even an option to talk to them anymore. If they've passed away, or if they're too far, or if you just physically cannot talk to them. I think God's asking for us to take a moment 
and to let him speak to us. For some of you, that means making a phone call after you leave here or maybe in the morning. For others of you, it means writing a letter. Even if that person who hurt you is never, ever going to see it, you need to write it down for you. You need to take it. You need to be bluntly honest. And you need to give it to the Lord. And then burn it. Get rid of it. Do whatever it takes. But you have to forgive and you have to ask for help. Some of us need to actually be forgiven. We're the offenders. We're the ones who've done the wrong. And we know it. Even if the person is not asked, we know it. I'm going to ask you, if you'll come to the Lord, humbly say you're sorry, and then make right the thing that you've done wrong. Again, whatever that means. That person might be in this room, and that's okay. If a conversation needs to happen right now, we'll have the time to have it. But if God's speaking to you right now on this area of forgiveness, if he's talking to you about an area where you said, I have no need of you, or if you need to be forgiven, I'm going to ask us to take an action. Will you come to the front here? This is the altar. Will you come to the Lord and just give it to him? So many times it's the devil's word that he tells you you're alone. There's no one else like you. No one's touched that thing before. No one's gone there. No one has to know about that. And he holds you in chains because you think it was your fault or you think that there's nothing you can do about it. That's the greatest lie. Before I came to the Lord, one of the biggest things I struggled with was suicide. And it's because I was bonded by those chains. I'm the only one that ever went through this. It's a lie. A lie from the pit of hell, okay? So, if you have something, will you come? If you need to talk to someone in this room, will you go talk to them right now? Don't wait till tomorrow. Please. We're going to spend a moment here in prayer. Do what you need.